Good morning, everyone. Am I live back there, Landon? I got the thumbs up, so we're good. Uh, if you open with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, um, and while you're turning there, let me just recap uh, what we've been, uh, some of the things we've been seeing in the book of Acts. Um, and what we've seen are, are basically two intertwined storylines. One story is the growth of the community of Christian believers after God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. Um, and with that moment, you start seeing this church grow, both um, numerically, but also geographically. Um, they add, you know, the phrase that Luke has used multiple times is that the, they add to their numbers every day. The numbers of those baptized, the numbers of those who join. Um, so we've seen this growth of the church. And we've also seen it grow geographically, starting in Jerusalem and then into Judea and Samaria. And as we saw last week, even reaching an Ethiopian who's bound to his homeland. So that reach of that gospel has expanded over the course of these um, seven chapters from chapter 2 to chapter 8. Alongside that story of the growth of the church is another story, a story of increased opposition to the church. So as the church grows, so too has opposition to the work of the apostles and the disciples and Christian believers grown as well. So it started out with um, arrest and warning, and then it went to arrest beating and warning, and then it went to arrest and um, basically a lynching with the execution of Stephen by um, the crowd stoning him at the end of chapter 7. Um, and we've seen you know, one of the results of that persecution, the increasing per persecution, is that you know, even though these are two different stories, they're intertwined. And we saw last week in our study of, of chapter 8 how that increased persecution of the church led to its dispersal, which led to the gospel breaking into places it had not yet broken in. And last time we focused on how the gospel um, captured all of Samaria um, and the need for this dramatic giving of the Spirit to authenticate that, uh, that God is reaching out to the Samaritans to overcome that latent Jewish hostility towards Samaritans. Um, so it, it goes into Samaria, but then we also see it going, so it's going north, we also saw it going south with Philip going down and encountering this um, Ethiopian eunuch who carries the gospel presumably with him as he returns to his homeland, while Philip then goes and preaches along the coast. So last week's chapter started with the persecution story, and then it went back to the growth story, and now today we swing back to both those storylines um, with this first word, uh, or first two words of chapter 9, but Saul. That's kind of like taking us back to... Um, what Saul was doing back in chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church, 
and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So when we get that but Saul at the beginning of chapter 9, it's going back to what we last saw Saul doing in verse 3 of chapter 8. So with that, let me um, read and then open our time together in prayer. So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here? For this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask him to open it in our hearts as we think and talk about it this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do give you praise this day and every day for your love and goodness to us. We thank you for the way that you've united us to Christ and thus united us to one another, making us not just individuals, but part of a community of believers. A community that when one part suffers, it all suffers. And indeed, as we see here in Acts 9, that when your church is persecuted, truly Christ can ask, why do you persecute me? For we are members of his body. We thank you that you hear our prayer, O Heavenly Father, that you hear the plaintive cries of your saints, and you act in history. You intervene. You change the hearts of men and change people's courses to fit your will, your sovereign direction. And we thank you for the way that you intervened mightily in the life of this one Saul. Truly, what a picture of conversion 
one who is going to persecute the church in Damascus, arrives to proclaim your gospel in Damascus by the work of your power and your testimony to him. Truly, your spirit is a mighty work in the hearts of us, in the hearts of men and women, that you can turn stubborn resistance to the gospel to faithfulness, even faithfulness unto suffering and death, as we see in the life of Paul. We ask that you would continue to transform us by your spirit, continue to strengthen us, as you, even as you strengthen Paul in this chapter to serve you, and that you would help us be part of your gospel going forth to the ends of the earth, that we would proclaim it faithfully in word and deed, that even stubborn hearts, blind eyes, deaf ears might have that seed planted that by your initiative you grow into faith, that you use um, even the death of your saints to grow your church um, in the face of stubborn resistance. Help us be a part of that community of faith and strengthen our faith as we study your word this morning from the book of Acts. Encourage us how we should live faithful lives of um, testimony and witness to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. So before we get to um, Saul's conversion, let's talk a little bit about what does Luke emphasize about the unconverted Saul? So the first part of chapter 9 focuses on Saul's, you know, this dramatic encounter that we'll talk about and, and try to figure out what happens on the road to Damascus. But before we get there, what does Luke want to um, emphasize about who Saul is before he has this moment? on the Damascus Road. Yeah, right. Yeah, so two words there. You know, zealous, and, and this is something, and what I love about this is Paul doesn't um, disagree with any of this. <laughs> like, you know, we see multiple times in his epistles where he goes back to his early life, like his Philippians 3, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Like, you know, he equates his persecution of church with his, his zeal to do it. Like, that is what he sought to do. And the intent of his heart, as Ronnie just said, murderous. Like, you know, he doesn't have, it's his intention to see people brought to death. Um, like, he, he doesn't have the power to actually execute them, um, but that's the intention of his heart, is, to, is, is murder. He, he doesn't want to just see this church stop. He wants to see these people killed. Okay, yes.
Yeah, absolutely. Those verbs there. He went to the high priest. He asked for letters to synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, yeah, absolutely. He, he is, this is his initiative. Um, he seems, and, and, and notice, like, I, to go back, like, beginning in chapter 8, Saul approves of Stephen's execution. So, like, the first time we meet Saul, he's, he's collecting coats. Um, the next time we see Saul, he's approving of the execution. And then he's ravaging the church in Jerusalem, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committed them to prison. So notice this. He's gone from holding coats at the death of one Christian to approving of that. Like, so he wasn't just there. Like, you know, sometimes you get people who, you know, who are at a lynching and they don't approve of it, but, you know, they're there. Um, he's there and that makes it clear he's, he's there and he approves. And then he's persecuting the church in Jerusalem, so where he is. And now he's going to ask permission to, to, to drag Christians back from 130 plus miles away back to Jerusalem so they can be punished. So, yeah, uh, that, it's a trajectory of ambition. <laughs> I think that was a great way to characterize it. that he's zealous. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, there is this zeal, murderous zeal in his heart to, um, to put an end to this, what, you know, as, I mean, he's, he doesn't give us a lot of theologically what he's seeking, but, like, you know, we could see his reaction as the reaction to that crowd to Stephen, that they hear his words as, they hear Stephen's words as blasphemous. And what do you do with blasphemers? You kill them. And so, yeah, it's, it's re religious zeal. Yeah, he's not doing it strictly for political purposes, like that he's not attached to what he's doing. I think... <laughs> yeah, he's absolutely sincere and what he's doing, and seeking to do more of it. So, I mean, he's ambitious in that. Like, just sitting around and, and having Christians die in his midst isn't good enough for him. So he's ambitious, um, not in the sense of, uh, yeah, of, you know, personal ambition, but ambitious to see this church eliminated. Um, and that he's willing to go, like, we haven't even seen the church in Damascus yet. <laughs> like, um, you know, the last chapter we saw the church in Samaria and, and Judea and along the coast. Um, you know, he's skipping. <laughs> you know, we get our first description of Christians in Galilee in this chapter. Like, he, he's going beyond Galilee. He's going to, you know, again, he's, you know, he's stepping outside the bounds of Israel. And he's trying to get ahead of the church in a sense. He's, in his, his zealous ambition to bring this to an end, he's like 
trying to outrage the gospel. Yeah, what a, and as you think about it, like, you know, like, how is that possible? Um, and I think, you know, as we, we, we turn from what Saul was before to Saul's conversion, and I think that's a great place to start. Because we can look at Saul's conversion and say, um, you know, that is the result of direct initiative to God, uh, of God, revealing him, you know, Jesus revealing himself in a visible, tangible way on the roads of Damascus, that's not normal. Like, clearly something extraordinary. And so we can chalk the whole thing up to, how is this sudden change possible? Strictly, you know, God can only bring that change about. Um, and we can miss, uh, you know, as, as I've been reading this through Acts, I, I think this is part of why Luke has been dropping Saul's name along the way. Like, he lets us know that Saul was at Stephen's execution, which cues us in to not only he was there approving of the bench, but he's also there hearing. You know, so the, even though he's totally rejected this gospel message, you know, it's totally antithetical to him, as um, Rob was saying, like, you know, he hears the gospel and he wants, in a zeal for God, he wants to end it. But he's still hearing the gospel. Um, he's still heard the message proclaimed. He's seen people who are willing to die for their faith. He sees people who are willing to suffer um, for their faith. Like, he's seen, he, he hasn't, and again, don't get me, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's been softened in any way by this. But I'm, what I'm saying is the, the rudiments of the gospel are present for him. So it's not just God doing a work on that road to Damascus. But now all that gospel presentation that he's been rejecting you know, up to this point is now there available for him to make sense. And so when he preaches his first sermon in Damascus, it's not the first time he's heard a sermon. Um, he's, it's not the first time he's heard the resurrected Jesus proclaim is when it's coming out of his mouth. Like he can preach the resurrected Christ because the resurrected Christ is preached to him. He rejected it completely and God had to do you know an amazing thing to take the blinders um, and again I, I the idea of him being blinded and then being able to see I think is a key um, not just part of the his experience but the metaphor of that like you know earlier we saw what's the description of the high priest that Peter gives they have eyes but they're not seeing they have ears they're not hearing. It takes a work of God to, to change a person's heart to let them be able to hear and see. Um, but, you know, when he hears and sees, he's responding to a gospel message that's been, he's heard proclaimed beforehand. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, I mean, and I love how, you know, that's emphasized here, Bill, in that, um, 
you know, look how, uh, so he, he's going to Damascus. He has letters from two synagogues in Damascus from the high priest. And then on the way there, um, he, you know, has this moment. And, you know, Jesus tells him, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. Like, he has one commission, he sets off from Jerusalem with one commission, you know, from the high priest to do destruction uh, to the church, to do evil, as Ananias describes it. Like, Lord, this guy is somebody who's done evil to the saints, to the holy ones. Um, he sets off with evil intentions in his heart, and he arrives, um, and, and notice when Ananias finds him, he prays. Um, and so this one who is a persecutor, sets off from Jerusalem as a persecutor of the church in Damascus, ends up, as you say, Bill, what a dramatic transformation. He becomes a proclaimer of the gospel in Jerusalem. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, three days without food, water, or sight. So, I mean, trapped in darkness uh, for three days and praying. Um, and we're not given the content of his prayer here, but, you know, that's the great thing about Luke and Acts is he emphasizes over and over again prayer um, and how prayer is a part of community life. And we get that substance of a prayer um, you know, at times, you know, this appeal to God that God's will be done. Um, you know, you do your will in my life. Um, and again, this change, like he goes from one who causes suffering um, for the church to as, um, as what uh, the Lord says to Ananias in the vision. Um, the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So one, he goes from one who causes great suffering to one who will suffer greatly for the same message. Um, yeah, and imagine what that does, how his prayers are different. Like, you know, praying to execute Christians to praying for... Christians who face martyrdom and persecution, you know, praying for the, the energy and the zeal and strength to bring an end to the church, to now praying for that church to grow and to be strengthened. Like, yeah, <laughs> a, a radical change in what his devotion looks like, what his worship looks like. Yeah, note it in the humbling part of it, I think there is emphasized. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Like that, um, we'll see in a couple chapters that same phrase, being led by the hand, is a description of a person's helplessness. Like it's just used 
to describe a person's helplessness. Like, you know, they, he can't do for himself anymore. Like, he has to have other people lead him. Um, yeah, it puts an immediate stop to what he was doing. Um, and notice, the again, the change. Like, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So, um, like, yeah, there's, uh, you know, an immediate, his first mission is immediately thwarted. <laughs> Um, by this encounter and the resulting blindness. Um, and once he's you know, restored the sight and receives the Holy Spirit and is baptized and spends a few days with the disciples, immediately he's going to, and notice he's going to the same places he was supposed to go in the first place. You know, he's sent with letters for the synagogue in Damascus. He shows up in the synagogue in Damascus but with a very different <laughs> message than what he set out with Jerusalem. Um, yeah, Teresa. The guys with him? Um, no. <laughs> um, and, and that's a good point. Like, um, we actually have three pretty lengthy descriptions of Paul's conversion. Focus on this one. Sometimes I think we miss the fact that he actually, Luke tells the story, and then Paul tells the story and acts twice more. Um, and each time it's slightly different um, in terms of what his, um, you know, what was those around him. So this is from Luke 22. Um, so in Luke 22, 9, he says, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So, you know, here, you know, we're told that they, uh, um, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So in both cases, they, they're hearing something, but they're not perceiving. Um, and then in 26, um, where is it? Uh, so this is in Acts 26. Um, uh, he says, and on the way, a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language. So all the descriptions are like slightly different. But I, what, I, what is being emphasized is that the message that's being given is specifically for Saul. Um, and the other people around him are perceiving something is going on, like they, you know, they're hearing noise, um, you know, they're seeing light, but they're not seeing a resurrected, you know, an epiphany of the resurrected Christ. They're not hearing this voice that's speaking through Saul, says in Acts 26 in Hebrew. Like, so they, you know, it's, it's light and noise to them with no context. Um, uh, yes, so we don't, we don't know what happens to these guys, but the emphasis seems to be on that this, the, this appearance, you know, theophany, this appearance of God, and it's described in the terms of theophany often are, if you look in you know, we talked about this 
when God shows up, there's usually a light show, um, and there's noise. <laughs> and they're, you know, they're perceiving a light show, they're perceiving noise, but they are not getting the content of revelation that, that Saul is getting. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, what happens to them outside this, like, I, I don't think we can say. We can say only that, you know, and again, I think that's a good description of, of proclamation. Like, people can, you know, come to our worship and perceive something going on and not get the message. Um, and in this case, here's God directly speaking to Saul. <laughs> And the guys around him, yeah, they're, they're not clued in to the message because the message isn't for them. God is, is doing a work in Saul's heart at this moment, and that's what's being emphasized. And they got to lead him around by the hand now. So clearly they recognize something's happened to him. Yeah, we don't know what's happened to them, but clearly they know something's happened to Saul. Like, you know, and they, they're, you know, it seems that, you know, they perceive the light and, and noise, um, but the, you know, Luke's emphasis is that the message is for Paul. Uh, and that's what Paul emphasizes later in these subsequent you know, here was, you know, God broke into my life in a way, you know, it's a private message delivered in a public forum. Maybe that's a way to think about it. Like this, you know, the message is for Paul, but it's delivered in such a way that other people can attest to the fact that he received the message in the way he received it. Rob. Um, yeah, so, um, and, and that's a good point. Um, this, this transformation of Saul to Paul isn't necessarily a part of his conversion story. So that's why it's not, you know, we often associate the two things, that Saul's the persecutor of the church and Paul is the missionary, and therefore it must be his moment of conversion. Um, the kind of matter-of-the-fact way that, that Luke is going to describe it four chapters later. Like, lots of people have multiple names in this culture or go by different names. So this Saul, who's also called Paul, is going to get called Paul. Like, just as we see in this chapter, you know, this very chapter, we're given this description of this woman named Tabitha, which means Dorcas. Like, she's called Tabitha, she's called Dorcas. You know, people have multiple names uh, or can be called multiple names. The same way, like I, I know who's calling me on the phone by, by wh how they address me. <laughs> like they address me as Stephen. This person, <laughs> clearly, this person isn't familiar with English, much less my name. Um, you know, if they call me Stephen, it's probably my parents. <laughs> you know, um, they say, "Hey," it's probably one of my children. Um, my children never call me on the phone, so actually, it's actually not. It's only, I only communicate with them by text. But, um, um, but I digress. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, there could be practical reasons for undergoing a name change, but it's not. Um, but your what you've observed, Rob, is 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 accurate. That um, his name change isn't associated with this moment of conversion. Like it, like we don't, we're not um, clued in to the fact that Saul is called Paul for another four chapters, and 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 literally, well, I can read it real quick. Luke does it in this completely kind of matter of fact kind of way, like, you know, oh, and by the way, Saul, so this is in chapter 13, verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, like, you know, that's it. <laughs> that's Saul's name change to Paul, is Saul was also called Paul, and from henceforth, we're going to call him Paul. Um, so it's not necessarily related to this other transformation of his heart that we see in cha chapter 9. Um, other aspects of his conversion that stand out to you? Yeah, Jay. Yeah, I mean, theologically, I would say the emphasis, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, what do we, when we hear three days, what do we usually think of? You know, <laughs> three days between death and resurrection. Like, I, I think it's that, I think that would be more of a theological point than, like, some kind of good point of Jewish cultural practice, that the fact that just as Christ was in the grip of, of the grave, for three days, so Paul was, was in darkness until God released him by sending this man Ananias to him. Um, and I, again, I love, as I've been thinking about this, um, I love the way the church is a participant in this story, both before the fact, you know, before um, Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. The church has been preaching faithfully. Saul hasn't heard it, but he's been present for it. Um, and then how, you know, he's not converted as a Lone Ranger apostle. Like, and again, sometimes I think we have that idea of like, well, you got the 12 and then God called Paul and he goes out and does his own thing. Like, um, no, he's, he's locked in darkness for three days until a man whom God also came in a vision to, this man Ananias, comes to him. And I love, like, this has got to be one of the most specific visions in Scripture. I didn't have time to investigate all visions in Scripture, but uh, it struck me the specificity of this particular vision. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. Like, <laughs> here's the street address. <laughs> Here's the guy you're looking for. <laughs> um, this is what he's going to be doing when you find him. Like, um, I and uh, yeah. So what uh, what do we make of Ananias's role in this story? Um,
yeah, that he, he, he responds, as you say, in faith. That he's willing to go to this guy, and something we didn't talk about, we talked about things Saul actually did. Saul had a reputation at this point. Like, notice how both Ananias knows, wait a minute, this is the guy who's done evil to your church. Um, when Saul stands up to speak, in um, the Damascus synagogues, they all say, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? So Saul has this um, you know, frightening reputation before he even gets to Damascus. Like It's known who he is, what kind of man he is, what he's done for the church, to the extent that Ananias you know, is like, Wait, I gotta go see who? <laughs> like, um, this is a guy who's done evil to the saints. Um, and you want me to go see him? And then he goes and does it. So, yeah, it's a tremendous description of Ananias' response to the Lord's, faithful response to the Lord's command. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, and conversational, because notice he gives the objection, and then God gives him further reasons. Like, okay, let me give you a little more. <laughs> yeah, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So again, this one who's described you know, later on um, made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name you know, here God's telling Ananias, he is going to, um, he's going to be this chosen instrument to carry my name. Like the one who's been seeking to eradicate the name of Christ is going to be the one who, who carries it. But, but yet, it, it involves this conversation with God to overcome that barrier. And notice, like later on, it's not just Ananias. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. Like, you know, it, and that might be, you know, from, from what Paul says at the beginning of the letter of Galatians, that showing up in Jerusalem might be a few years later. So it, there's a long period of, of the church having to be convinced of what happens on this road to Damascus. And it takes this, you know, divine conversation with Ananias to bring him around quickly. <laughs> it's going to take the church a little longer to, um, to, to have a different understanding of who Saul is. Saul, Saul, or heard of him. Um, but yeah, that um, it, it takes, uh, it's a, it takes a faithful response of Ananias, Ananias, but it takes God doing some convincing of him. <laughs> 
Um, and it's got to be a pretty incredible vision. Uh, I saw Jay's hand raised. Yeah, to hear someone who's literally verses before is a persecutor of the church, actively seeking to destroy the church, and because of the work of God in him, you know, Ananias goes from seeing him, and, and you know, when he thinks of the name Saul, he thinks persecutor of the church. Like that's the, uh, you know, that's the equation that's going on in his head to now equating, now when he hears the name Saul, he thinks brother. Like, yeah, what what a change. Um, and there are all kinds of things going on in chapter 9. Like, I'm trying not to, trying to focus on the big things. Um, but, like, we could do a whole class just on all the different ways Christians are referred to in chapter 9. Like, the way, those who call upon the name of the Lord. Um, brother. All these different ways chapter 9 has of capturing saints, you know, holy ones, it's the first time saints gets used in the book of Acts is here. And then when Ananias says, the Saul, he's the one who's done evil to your saints, like to your holy ones, um, you know, all these different names. But, but I think it's capturing there, yeah, you're absolutely right. This one who was persecutor now is brother. And, and what a transformation. And can we like, think of that in our, we're called upon that, you know, like sometimes people who are from our culture or a nation that we think of as enemies, can we overcome that barrier to think of them as fellow believers, to think of them as brothers and sisters in Christ? Like, you know, it's not just something that Ananias has to go through, that the apostles had to go through with Saul. I think we have to go through that, overcoming all our cultural assumptions and prejudices to equate this unity in Christ, overcome all those kinds of what that person was in the past to what they are now, what they are in the eyes of God. Like We have to overcome those kinds of prejudices that we carry. Other things you want to say about... Uh, Ananias? Yeah. Yeah. That that there's a track record (laughs) of when you hear God's voice, um, even when it's something you don't want to do, there's a lot of records of faithfulness doing that kind of thing, um, which should be encouraging to us. Like, when we have a pretty clear directive from the Lord God, this is what we should do, even if it scares us, um, makes us uncomfortable, we probably should still do it. <laughs> Not probably, we should still do it. Uh, we, we can remove the probably. <laughs> yeah, Chris.
Yeah, and I love it on, on that. Uh, I love how Saul talks about Ananias later on. So again, like we get Saul's conversion story three times. You know, he tells it twice more later in the book. And he says this, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Um, I love the, you know, the language there. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, you know, I love how in that, that you know, in Paul's telling the story, he spends even more time. You know, like, you know, in Luke's telling it the first time, yeah, there's a Christian and, and Damascus, Ananias. And, you know, Luke gives us this, you know, this guy, you know, who he is. And he gives us more content to what he said. Like, you know, here we're just told, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul gives us this you know, lengthier description of what it was that Ananias told him. Um, and, you know, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. Like, we get a fuller sense of Ananias, how he's presenting the gospel message to Saul there. Um, yeah, it is a, a great picture of how the impact um, on this one person is going to change uh, things. And notice how um, he doesn't directly equate, equate the story of Saul to this, but you can think of, of the two because he's the last part of this story of Saul's conversion is so the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit that multiplied. Like, he, you know, God's not only created someone who's later in the book is going to be the instrument of taking the gospel to the Gentiles and you know, to the ends of the Mediterranean world, he's also removed the chief persecutor. Um, of, you know, and it has immediate effects on the church, like this church that's being scattered and harried, you know, the havoc, like all havoc, evil, the language that Luke has used to describe what's happening to the church in these two chapters um, comes to an end. And we have this, you know, this period of, of peace, um, a period of prosperity for the church, you know, it, it multiplies in the midst of the persecution, we see it multiplying, and we see it multiplying when that persecution comes to an end in this period of peace. Like God's growing in his church in both situations. Yeah, he goes from a traditional Jewish believer who believes that there's 
there's only one God, to understanding that this one God has a Son and a Holy Spirit. Because look at his, his sermon. Um, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. That's the first time the phrase Son of God has been used in the book of Acts. Like, that is the most, like, you know, Stephen got stoned <laughs> for, you know, suggesting. <laughs> um, and here Saul is saying it openly. Like, this Jesus, whom was you crucified, is the Son of God. He, he wasn't just God's messenger. He wasn't just a sent one. He wasn't just a righteous person that he killed. He's the son of God. Like they've been kind of talking ar around it. And he, he says it as directly and as um, antithetical to what he, he would have believed beforehand as possible. Um, yeah, when he, the change, he goes from there is what one God um, to there is a God who sent his son um, and he kind of unites us to him by his Holy Spirit and fills us with power because of his spirit. Like, yeah, it's a pretty dramatic change and in, in, in what he believes. Um, that's recognized. And, you know, he pretty immediately starts receiving the same kind of things that he was dishing out when he heard here. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. It's like this one who had been a plotter is now the one who's plotted against. You know, this one who sought other people's lives is having to escape Damascus in a basket, um, you know, being lowered out a window. Like, yeah, Saul's circumstances change really dramatically. All right, we're, we're at time, but any further thoughts on conversion of, of Saul? Well, let me close us in prayer. Gracious God, we do praise you for as we um, read and talk about the story of Saul and how he had this dramatic encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, that uh, we too have encountered you, that we've entered into relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we too call upon the same name and proclaim the same name, that the same Holy Spirit has done a work in our hearts to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and respond to your gospel, that you've allowed us to see it as good news and as good news for us. We thank you for how you uh, knit us together as a body to encourage one another, uplift one another in prayer, to, uh, to go to brothers and sisters, even as we see Ananias, go to this one who uh, had this reputation as being a destroyer of the ear church and to be able to call him brother. To be able to overcome his initial hesitancy in receiving one whose reputation preceded him in such a negative way that he can overcome that um, and to see Saul for who he really is, a sinner, 
saved by grace. One who has received the righteousness of Christ. That one who needs to repent of his sin and be baptized. And so by the work that you've done in him, despite of all the horrible things that Saul has done, that you have taken his sin and his righteousness and you've clothed them with your perfect righteousness, washing away his sin. Just as you've done with us, that you have cleansed us from our misplaced zeal for other religious messages or for the things of this world and given us a zeal for Jesus Christ. Help us by the power of your spirit to be strengthened, even as we see Paul um, grow stronger and stronger as Luke describes it. Um, His being strengthened in the faith isn't a one-time thing. It's a lifelong growing in grace. May you continue to sanctify us in a similar way. Give us opportunities to proclaim your gospel, to exercise the gift you've given us. The opportunities to be faithful, even if it doesn't produce immediate response, but to know that you plant your seed and that you'll change people's hearts uh, in your time and the course of your will. May your will be done. Help us now with joyful hearts to worship you in this coming hour. Uh, giving praise to our glorious God the Father, our glorious Son, who you sent for us, and to your Holy Spirit, who has united us to Christ and to one another. In the name of this triune God we pray and we worship.